Welcome to the Portugal podcast as we are feeling a lot of soldat and uh, sadness as Portugal got their ass kicked basically by Germany. Germany won 4-2 in Munich in the second group stage game at Euro 2020. I'm here to uh, break it down with Tom Cundit. Tom, how are you going? How did you, how did you sleep? Yeah, not too well. Well, just a, a bit shell-shocked, you know. I think like everyone in Portugal, that was just really unexpected. We knew it was going to be a tough game, but, well, what a disaster. And what are the major newspapers there saying this morning as people get their, their, their beakers? Not too harsh, actually, I'd say. But, uh, anyway, pretty... The jogo go with uh, Schumbados in Munich, just means failed in Munich. Record, they've got quite a funny headline. It's Portuguese saying, I'm sure lots of our listeners will know it. It means banho de bola. Literally, it means a bath of ball. But what does that mean? It just means when one side just completely outclasses the other side, really. And, uh, you know, that's definitely what we saw yesterday. Uh, a bola, they're a little bit more positive. They just say levanted. Portugal, so yeah, get up Portugal, and then their, their sub-headline is uh, you know, a heavy defeat exposes the fragilities and uh, postpones the uh, progress to the uh, to the game against the world champions, so yeah, they're already looking ahead, <laughs> perhaps uh, you know, trying to uh, just think what went wrong. It was, uh, it was ugly in a lot of ways. What annoyed me about it was that so much of what Germany did was just completely predictable. And we talked about it. And, of course, Portugal taking the lead was another thing we talked about, that Portugal would be trying to exploit Germany on the counter-attack. They did that fabulously from a, from a corner. And they raced upfield, beautiful pass by Bernardo to Jota and then back across to Cristiano. And at that point, I'm sure all Portuguese supporters were thinking that uh, there was going to be a, a, a positive afternoon down in Munich, but obviously there was a lot of danger signs before that. Gosens had a, had a goal ruled out for offside after just four minutes, and there was obviously a lot of a lot of warning signs from Portugal being unable to really stop Germany getting into really dangerous positions. You could see a lot of those early threats from Germany just really come to life. They scored four goals in, in 25 minutes, obviously a couple of them go down as own goals but either way it was really really alarming and I'm, we'll get into some of the the, the individual players and, and some of the tactical deficiencies i just want to start off with some comments from a couple of the players after the match danilo said that we let them infiltrate our defense we failed to stop the inside game of the germans that was the crucial aspect we weren't good at applying pressure and that allowed germany to have a lot of possession of the ball we have to be better we have to prepare the game against France well because it's going to be very demanding. And Diogo Jota saying, we weren't audacious enough at putting pressure on them to hinder their game. And that was something pissed me off a lot, Tom. I mean, it's fine to just, you know, let the opposition have the ball in their own half, which we see Santos, his tactics to, to Portugal do a lot, and that's fine. But if you're going to do that, at least set up some sort of block in your own half and make it a little bit difficult for them to get close to your box. And Portugal were just terrible at that. What, what did you actually think about that part of the game? Yeah, 100%, Matt. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, do you know what I think also was a very bad thing for Portugal? Uh, was scoring that goal. Because, uh, like you said, even before Portugal scored, 
Germany just came straight out of the traps and were all over Portugal in the first, you know, 10 minutes or so. And I thought, well, you know, this is bad. You know, maybe Portugal are a bit nervous or they're, they're finding their feet. But uh, then Portugal scored that brilliant breakaway goal. And I think probably in the minds of Portugal players, and maybe Santos, they thought, OK, yeah, this is OK. This is, a, you know, nothing needs addressing. This is, this, is, this is our plan. This is how we thought it would go. But the thing is, like you said, uh, you know, it's one thing to, to sit back. But, yeah, Portugal just let them, let Germany dominate them to such an extent that goals were absolutely inevitable. And you're right there. And the, the player comments, just uh, at least that's good. They, they kind of, uh, you know, put their finger on it. There was just no pressure at all. It, it just seemed to make it easy for, for Germany. I was just amazed the amount of times that Germany were just passing straight through Portugal. And every time they received the ball, you know, you, you had Havertz and, and the midfielders and Kimmich coming inside receiving the ball, kind of 25 yards out, maybe five, uh, five or 10 metres from the... Portugal box and no Portuguese player around them for you know two or three meters and then so that just gave them time to pick their passes spread it out wide and uh, you know then those crosses just came in you know and the crosses were just uh, just killed Portugal didn't they so yeah you know from a like you said it's very surprising because you can accuse Fernando Santos of of many things as a, a Portugal coach perhaps not being audacious enough you know not not being expansive enough in his football but one thing he usually is very good at is organising his team from a defensive point of view, making them very tough to uh, to break down. But you know that just was nowhere to be seen at all yesterday. Yeah, it was it was just pathetic. It was just terrible. That uh, even look watching the highlights again this morning, seeing what is it the second goal where, of course, goes into in, in a mile of space, but then he cuts the ball back to Thomas Muller, who's inside the 18-yard box, and there's no one anywhere near him. Absolutely no one tracking him back. And it was just horrible to watch. I guess some of this we'll get into with maybe more formation or lineup stuff and, and, and different players in different positions. We could break that down into a lot of depth. But yeah, I think we just sort of covered the main problems with what happened in this game. And you did it very well by saying that scoring that goal was obviously part of the plan and, and they executed it to perfection. But maybe that just sort of gave them another a false sense of security. And I got to admit I was wrong the other day when I said that it was... Portugal had a good draw here to play Hungary first. I'm starting to think that I was... Well, I was wrong. I've got to admit I was wrong. I think that coming into this game with Portugal, I guess knowing that a draw would be a good result, maybe affected their mentality and maybe just made them, you know, sit back and just invite constant pressure, which was, as you said, just inevitably going to result in goals. So, yeah, it was extremely, extremely disappointing from that perspective because... Nothing about what Germany did was a surprise yesterday. Nothing about the way they set up, nothing about the way they were going to play. I was looking back at the 2016 run, Tom. We talked about that that the other day, about how Fernando Santos evolved that team throughout the tournament and how how he changed different things around. And and, and if you looked at it, you know, there was, he he changed stuff with the fullbacks. Fiorinha pretty much played it right back and then uh, Cedric Suarez came in there. He actually played Eliseo a little bit at left back too. But obviously, yeah. one of the main things was bringing uh, Renato Sanchez into the midfield. But one thing I, I noticed when I was looking through that this morning was that, if you remember, basically it was William or Danilo for Fernando Sanchez for a very, very, very long time. He didn't really play them both together. That's only a recent kind of construct for him. 
that's really something to, to, to sort of think about. I'm not, I don't think we're going to see it again, to be honest. I don't think we're ever going to see it again. I think he will learn some lessons from this match and, you know, play someone more dynamic next to one of them. Something that I just picked up looking through those 2016 starting lineups and, and thinking about yeah. it. Um, yeah, you're right, Matt. I think that, that you know, the Danilo William kind of double pivot, that you're right, that kind of came about after, I think, yeah, like you said, relatively recent. I think maybe even after the World Cup. I can't remember if it was during the World Cup also. But the thing is also that even that dynamic has changed a lot, I think, because of, unfortunately, William, who's, a, you know, one of my all-time favourite players, but he's just not the player he was anymore. And when that, uh, you know, the, the games that they played together, sometimes it worked really well because William wasn't really used just as a holding midfielder. Uh, he almost was like, a, you know, an eight. He used to go forward quite a lot. He was quite dynamic. I know it's funny to, to use that word uh, associated to, to William, you know, who's, who looks quite a slow player. But he was, you know, he was good at progressing the ball forward. But, but you know, now he's just had a, he's had a very poor season at Betis. And he's just been, let's face it, he has been very poor this tournament. And his, uh, you know, it's just, like you say, having two players in there, both of them, you know, very slow, really. It's just, uh, it just doesn't work, no way. It's just a, a waste of a spot, really, because you have a feeling that, you know, maybe someone like Polina, <laughs> after the season he had, could almost kind of do the job that them two did and free up a, a space for, for someone else. And, and Sanchez, you know, there's... Just absolutely no doubt that Renato Sanchez has to start, uh, you know, after the impact he made, both in this game and in the Hungary game. Oh, yeah. And, you know, again, interesting looking back at 2016 was that he really had almost four central midfielders. Of course, you remember Andre Gomez yeah. was sort of on the left side. You had Joao Mario you know, on the right side of the, the four-man midfield. And, of course, you know, he had Nani and, and uh, Ronaldo up front. And you, you, I was thinking that would have been kind of perfect for yesterday. <laughs> that, would have, that would have been exactly what they needed yesterday. So I'm sure Fernando Santos has been thinking about all these things. Of course, uh, uh, Sanchez is going to come into the side here. And, obviously, another thing I didn't mention was that uh, uh, Adidian Silva was another guy that came into that team pretty much after the group stage in 2016 and ended up being that player in, in midfield, that, that terrier sort of guy. Yeah. A bit more mobile, a bit more speed. And definitely, yeah, looking at that 2016 side, it really made me a little bit curious as to wh why Santos went with that yesterday. Well, and... It's funny, Matt, because, I, uh, you know, no end of, of course, everyone was doing no end of predictions and previews for this tournament. And almost every person I spoke to asked me, uh, you know, I think like most people are asking, you know, is this a better squad than 2016? And uh, I, I always gave the same answer, which is yes. I think, you know, player for player, talent-wise, this is a better squad. But is it a better team? Because people forget, you know, that uh, it's, it doesn't really matter having 26 great players, is it? Because, you know, only 11 can play. And, uh, and then the subs. And the thing about that 2016 team is it just had chemistry. You know, it just had chemistry. Like you said, it evolved. And they worked really well as a unit. You know, they weren't probably... Uh, player for player as good as some of the players in this team but uh, certainly weren't as valuable their market value but you know it just it just worked cohesively and cohesion was one thing which just painfully missing yesterday yeah no doubt about it so that's really something to think about and I'm sure we're going to see some changes uh, for the France game no doubt about that so one thing we really have to talk about Tom is uh, is these, the fullbacks yesterday and how they got absolutely carved up 
time and time and time and time again. And as I said before, Gozan's actually scored in, in the fourth, fifth minute. And it was just a narrow offside, I think, on, on Gnabry, why that was ruled out. So the warning signs were there. It was just it was just horrible to watch for so many reasons. You know, why Semedo isn't making some adjustments to his positioning? Why no one in the team is is kind of saying something and, and making it happen? You, you would have thought that Danilo would have been the perfect guy to say, look, Nelson, we're getting carved up here, mate. You know, go a bit wider. I'll drop in. But none of that seemed to happen. And then, you, so you, that you've got why the players themselves didn't sort of recognise this and make some little adjustments. You, so the second thing is why that Fernando Santos couldn't scream and, and get some messages to his players to, to do something about that. Why there wasn't some sort of preparation and, and anticipation that this was something that was very likely to happen. So a lot of aspects of this annoyed me that they just didn't do anything to really stop that onslaught. It goes on just space and time and, and just completely devastating. And yeah. nothing, nothing seemed to change for the, the entire match. Just, just ridiculous. And then, of course, you have um, Rafael Guerrero, and we've talked about him getting isolated a lot and, and looking suspect in defence. And again, you know that he's going to have a tough job against uh, Joshua Kimmich, who's you know excellent player. So all these things were just so completely predictable. Really, nothing happened to stop it. When I saw that, that goal, I think it was the fourth one, where, where Kimmich uh, delivers the cross in for Gosens to head the ball. I mean, Guerrero's defending is just pathetic. He's just standing yeah. there miles away from him. Put, you know, no really attempt to ever get anywhere near him. Kimmich just stopped, looked up. Kind of the players, you know, waited for the, you know, the German players to run to get into perfect position. Stopped again, looked up, and all the time... Guerrero was just standing, you know, 10 yards from him, not closing him down. And then he just, of course, popped it on the on the head of the, uh, you know, the goal scorer. And that was it for, yeah. you know, fourth goal. So, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Matt, that for all you can order criticism, Santos can, uh, you know, you can level at Santos for the way he set up and the way he failed to predict this game. I think the biggest criticism is what you just said there, failing to address what everyone could see. You know, he just, Gosen's just got the freedom of the park, didn't he? And a lot of people are, uh, you know, just ripping Semedo to, to, to pieces in the media here. And uh, yeah, of course, he did have a poor game. But, you know, I felt a bit sorry for the guy because he was completely isolated. If you have a look at the highlights, there's quite a good few examples on Twitter as well. He's basically always asked to pick up two men you know, and then he ended up doing neither. Uh, and so, yeah, exactly. You should say Danilo should have dropped back to have a kind of line of five across or, you know, or even tell Bernardo Silva to, you know, to drop back further and, and help him out. But, uh, yeah, he was just completely isolated. So, and like you said, you know, it's almost like the definition of madness, wasn't it? Seeing the same thing happening again and again and again and expecting different uh, outcomes because Gosens probably couldn't believe it, you know, after having so much space to, to hurt Portugal in the first few minutes. He just got that for uh, basically the whole time he was on the pitch, wasn't he? So 60, 70 minutes. So, yeah, that was that was really, really quite damning, I think, the failure to address such an obvious, uh, you know, weakness in, in Portugal's play yesterday. Yeah, where was the leadership on the pitch? You know, obviously Ronaldo is that guy. Maybe he was a bit too far away from the action, but surely he could have also done something. Yeah, why there was no preparation to, to anticipate this. 
you know, you see a lot of elite managers in, in club football when they come up against an opposition that play this, this wing-back formation, which has become very popular in the last, what, five years or so, that, that they'll all sometimes mirror that and just switch to a back three themselves so that they, they can man up more uh, on, on the opposition wing-backs. And if you're not going to do that, I, I wouldn't suggest that Santos should have done that, but if you're not going to do that, at least have a plan in place to, to stop their wing-backs getting so much clear space just ridiculous and i'm sure i wasn't the only one just annoyed basically the whole game seeing this happen time and time again so that has to be addressed and yeah one thing i want to bring up is a couple of similarities with the under 21 side and one thing you notice at the under 21 european championship was that in this in the semi-finals against spain um diago Dalot was just getting completely owned by brian gill and they also had cucarella at left back and he was just getting double teamed time and time and time again. Vitinha sort of came across here and there. And, you know, it's just like, who's helping me here? Like, who the hell is helping me? Like, surely that was such an obvious thing to see. And you're thinking to yourself, is Louis George going to scream something and tell somebody to go and help him? Or like, what's going on here? Can the players figure it out? And then in the, in the final, of course, you saw left back Conte, you know, really getting struggling against uh, Baku, the, the, the Germany right back. And again, he, he's just got no help for that, for, for Germany's goal. And this is obviously a really tough thing to to manage and, and to organise when your, your full-backs are getting targeted and they're getting isolated by either really talented wingers or, in this case, um, wing-backs. And it's just a, something that really, it's such a basic thing of football that the managers, I would have thought, and, and in, in, in pre- preparing for games should have a, a contingency plan, a, a backup plan, a plan B, so that if your fullbacks are getting completely owned, then you can quickly switch things around and bring more help into midfield and, and, and do that. And just, just really, really, really disappointed. As, as I said, we've talked about this with Guerrero. I'm pretty sure at the 2018 World Cup in, in, the, in the opening games, I think it was. And if not then, then certainly other times where he's got completely isolated and completely dominated. It is strange, isn't it, Matt? I don't know if it's kind of the idea that, you know, they don't want, or Fernando Santos doesn't want to kind of, uh, he, he thinks that Portugal should play with their identity. Maybe it's the same thing with Rui George as well, that you know, they don't want to, uh, adapt their team too much to the opposition, but but sometimes you just have to do that. You know, you have to do that, uh, depending how the game goes. You know, Portugal scored one goal; they had a chance straight afterwards, didn't they? Perhaps if if that second goal had gone in, you know, then Germany would have thought they have to adapt, and maybe their uh, wing backs wouldn't have pushed up so much, or they thought, you know, we have to, you know, protect ourselves from the counter attack. Maybe that was Santos's thinking, but. Uh, but yeah, you know, when it's just, when it's just, I think the thing which really, like I said, which really just shocked people yesterday, was it's, it was just so glaring, wasn't it? You could see it, you could see it just looking at the match. This, it, it was just absolutely, there was an inevitability that Germany were going to score. Just thinking back to different games and different eras, when, when you have one team who just has an absolute star player, you know, someone like Diego Maradona, the other team devises a plan to stop that player you know when uh, of course I'm not saying Gosens is Diego Maradona but yesterday he was just hurting Portugal so much it was obvious that some kind of plan or you know some kind of strategy had to be put in place quickly to stop that and that just didn't happen and that was the disappointing thing 
Yeah, the reason why I didn't really mind Danilo and Carvalho both starting is because, as I said, I expected that if, if uh, Germany's wing-backs were going to start dominating, then, you know, Danilo had already played. Didn't he play at central defence for a little bit in one of the friendlies? He's been doing yeah. he's been doing that yeah. for, for PSG here and there. So that was a, such an obvious thing to put him into defence and then the fullbacks can go a bit wider and get a bit of uh, help from, from the other central defenders. And then William drops into that protection role. And then you get yeah. some of the other guys coming around, dropping further back. Obviously, uh, Bruno Fernandes and, and Bernardo and even Jota. But yeah, all this is, is obviously hindsight. But it just it just was really alarming that none of that kind of happened. So another little similarity I wanted to bring in with the under-21 side was the fact that managers obviously have their the guys that they trust, international managers I'm talking about. And sometimes they will um, pick some of these guys who haven't, done a whole lot at club level and we saw Louis George give Florentino Luis a chance because he's really been a mainstay of all those youth teams in the holding midfield role but not playing for Monaco has meant that he's just a step off the pace and he's just not at his optimal level and he's just going to get carved up by opposition players who are at the optimum level and have been playing regularly for their clubs and I think with William Carvalho we saw yesterday that him not really playing much for Real Betis has uh, has meant that yeah he's a he's a bit of a step off the pace now and he really is bringing nothing to the team at the moment. Which takes me to some of our fantastic uh, contributors for on the comments section of the Portugal Tom. I just wanted to throw some of these in throughout the podcast. We've got Migosh. I didn't know this time, but did you know it takes sunlight eight minutes and 20 seconds to reach Earth? That's an, uh, <laughs> You learn a lot by reading the comments on Portugal. Well, well that's, that, if that's true, that's, that's very insightful. But he says that William Carvalho takes more time than that to get the ball under control. <laughs> dude, has a horrible, dude has a horrible first touch. So, yeah, it did make me laugh as well, that comment, I must but, say. But yeah, yeah, I mean, scientific information, football analysis, you can get it all on Portugal. <laughs> and he also says that Semedo might be the most overrated Portuguese player of the last decade. That's probably a little bit harsh, but for sure, he was just hung out to dry yesterday. I guess we need to talk about Bruno Fernandes. Of course, he was uh, just unbelievable at sporting, got the big money move to Manchester United and getting massive plaudits there, really taking over that team, scoring heaps of goals, plenty of assists and really transforming Manchester United and getting them back up to that, that elite level. But as we've seen with Fernando Santos for a long time and maybe even currently failing to get the very best out of Bernardo Silva, it looks like He's not getting the best out of Bruno Fernandes. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I think he had... Uh, I, I was actually at the last friendly match against Israel here in Lisbon, and uh, that was probably Bruno Fernandes' best best game. You know, he was, he was very effective in that game, scored scored two excellent goals, got an assist as well for, uh, for Ronaldo. You know, and we thought, well, you know, at last, you know, because it really was the first time that... Almost the first time that Fernandes has really made a big impact, uh, you know, in a Portugal shirt. But of course, that was just a friendly. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, the, the tournament started and it's, uh, yeah, it's more the same. Uh, I have to say uh, that, again, I think this is one of 
uh, Fernando Santos's failings that he just doesn't seem to be able to get the best out of uh, you know more Portugal's more talented players, more technical players. Uh, we saw it with Bernardo Silva. You know he he took a long time to really get going, and then he did actually look very good. Uh, I'd say after the World Cup for uh, next year and a half or so, he was really good in the Nations League. Was a you know a big factor in Portugal winning that. But he seems to have kind of uh, regressed a little bit uh, again in a Portugal shirt. And, you know, you've got two players there, Bruno Fernandes and, uh, and Bernardo Silva. You really, you know, you look what they do at their at club level. And I'd say almost almost any national team in the world would like to have them in their squad. But, uh, but yeah, it's just, it just isn't working. For one reason or another, it isn't working. It's, of course, a bit unfortunate that they're two quite similar players in a way that uh, some people say you, you can only really play one of them I'm not sure if that's true or not but uh, a lot of people say also that Bernardo Silva perhaps his most effective position is in the middle uh, you know he he plays on the, on the right hand side doesn't he and for instance whenever he goes he always just cuts inside doesn't he and uh, he can't really hit the byline and get crosses but again that's not really his job but, uh, but, you know, you say that, but that's basically where he plays for Manchester City, isn't it? Uh, you know, on the right-hand side, cutting inside and using his left foot, you know, that wondrous left foot of his, and he does pretty well for them. So, yeah, it's difficult. I'm not really sure what the, you know, I, I find it hard to put my finger on it, but uh, he really, you know, Santos has, Santos has really failed to kind of harness the talent, this incredible talent which these two players have especially. You know, yesterday, Bruno Fernandes was really invisible. You know, I hate to say it because he's, you know, a big, big hero of mine, especially as a sporting fan. You know, I just was just absolutely marvelled at him for two and a half years. Uh, just game after game, basically, he was man of the match for sporting. But, uh, but yeah, for Portugal, just... I, I'm not, I can't really put my finger on it, uh, Matt. He's just not... He's just not been able to produce at all. Yeah, I think he's he's one of those players who mentioned it, that, you know, you, you almost got to give them the keys to the team. And, and you saw that uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer pretty much did that from day one and, and put him in that 10 role and gave him the freedom that he needs. It could be that when you need him to, to track back and to do the defensive work, you're just not going to get the best out of him. So there's a lot of uh, things you could look at, obviously opposition, but I would say that's pretty much it. Certainly some similarities with with Bernardo Silva and, and the fact that these two guys have really not shown you know the, the quality that you see for them in, at, at club level on, on the international stage so you really have to look to Fernando Santos for that which brings us on to Portugal's manager Tom and again we'll just go to some comments here from some of the, uh, the people on Portugal this is Chris who says, this is the reality, folks. Santos is either a genius or a moron. Santos is to blame for the result today, just he is to be credited for all the success he has brought. That's how it works. If Santos turns it around, of course, we'll all be back on the bandwagon. Forget selections and tactics. There is no intensity. No intensity if we are level none, if we are winning. And worst of all, no intensity when we are losing. I disagree a little bit with that. I thought there was quite a bit of intensity uh, in the second half. I thought uh, Sanchez was a big uh, reason why we showed more intensity. Obviously, the situation and needing to needing to open up was a completely different situation to the uh, the opening minutes of the game when we took the lead. And Mike says, for all of you that talk Santos down and wish him the worst constantly, 
and think you know more than him, shame on you. He brought us our two and only trophies. Put some respect to Fernando Santos and support him in his highs and lows. Interesting stuff there. And also, let's hear from the man himself, Tom, who, after the match, said, The responsibility is all mine. Collectively, we defended badly. When the left-back has the chance to do what he did, something went wrong. The team began to drop very deep, and this created problems for us. I want to look ahead. We want the moon every day. I'm going to think with a calm head. Wanting the moon like we wanted in this match is dangerous for my players. Now, there could be some lost-in-translation stuff there, Tom. I'm assuming he's talking about a draw would have been enough to qualify. Is that what he means by the moon? Uh, good question. I think here what he was getting at was, uh, I, I would guess, just maybe perhaps being too ambitious in a way, wanting the moon in that, uh, you know, maybe he, I can only guess that uh, Portugal's, for instance, their attacking players didn't track back at all, did they? Uh, maybe they thought that uh, wanting the moon, basically, I think he said what means wanting everything in this in this case, translated into wanting a victory. And uh, and that's what caused the problem for Portugal. That's the way I interpreted it anyway. Uh, and the way he said also looking at looking ahead to the France match, you know, that wanting the moon can be dangerous. Basically, you know, if you. Uh, it's basically it's a, it's a kind of poetic way of saying we've got to be pragmatic here, you know, and we've got to do what has to be done, even if it's a bit ugly. Uh, he talks a lot also, which is, I suppose, the same thing in different words about pretty football and ugly football. He said there's no such thing as pretty football and ugly football. It's just effective football, you know, winning football. That's the only thing I'm interested in or perhaps... Uh, more accurately results driven football you know getting the result which you need and uh, and so I think that's what he was getting at here uh, yeah very interesting comments there of course we're right Fernando Santos has given Portugal their greatest ever moment and he's been largely very successful so uh, you know it's in some ways it's difficult to <laughs> to you know be too harsh on him but uh, but you know yesterday I think there's no doubt about it uh, that it was on him. It's good to see that he's basically saying he, you know, he got it wrong, and I think there's no other way uh, he could really kind of defend himself. One thing I'm interested in, Matt, I'd be interested in your views of this. Is there was quite I watched quite a lot of the analysis after this game, as you can imagine here in Portugal. You know, there were hours and hours of, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of explanations and analysis of, you know, what went wrong in this game. And there was a kind of, a, I'd say, almost a kind of philosophical argument going on about, uh, for instance, one of the commenters there talked about intensity. And they were saying, you know, we need more pace, we need more power, we need more physicality in this side. And then some of the other commentators were saying, for instance, the chat we've just had with Bruno Fernandes and Bernardo Silva, you know, they have really <laughs> haven't shined at all in the Portugal side and they were saying no you know it's not a question of intensity it's, in question, it's a question of basically getting the system right and getting the best out of these players you wouldn't really call Bruno Fernandes or Bernardo Silva intense players in the sense that they're not particularly fast they're not particularly strong but uh, you know as, as everyone's seen they can be just incredibly effective so it's going to be very interesting you know seeing which way Fernando Santos goes because can't really see him dropping those two players 
that you know he just has to devise a system which just gets them more involved for sure i think yeah as you as you mentioned he he really had to come out here and and, and take the blame because there was no other way of looking at it there was you know, without going over what we've already said, there should have been anticipated, there should have been some contingency, there should have been more going on. That's why I said if there was going to be any changes, I anticipated that Moutinho would have come into this side so that, you know, if Danilo dropped back, then you've got Moutinho and William sort of there. It's really, really is interesting to look at what happened in 2016, Tom. And I'm sure he will be looking at this because it was just basically straight up 4-4-2 with Cristiano and Nani up front almost the whole time. And there was much more protection. There was, you know, much more solidity. We already saw, talked about the fact that Danilo and William never played together. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot of changes. We'll, we'll get onto that in a second, I guess, the changes we're likely to see. But, you know, just getting back to Santos and, and some of those comments and, and thinking about him. Obviously, if, uh, you know, if Portugal lose against France, that's going to be devastating. And if Portugal get eliminated in the group stage, it's going to be... A lot of questions asked about uh, Santos, but we have to remember also that he has proven to be a manager who can identify when things have gone wrong and to make some pretty quick changes that benefit the team. And we saw that in 2016, bringing in Adrian Silva, bringing in Renato Sanchez, making some some changes uh, at right back. Also, if you remember that in the group stage, you had uh, Ricardo Carvalho next to Pepe. And then of course he, he brought in Jose Font so there was quite a, a lot of things going on there and of course we're going to see that happen now as one of the, those comments said that you've got to still remember that he has got us the success many neutral observes obviously are just going to look at 2016 and say portugal were lucky and but either way the trophy is in the cabinet and that's really all that matters that's one of the things i really like about fernando santos is he does tend to uh you know he does change things up he does he he tends to analyze games well and change things. You've seen that throughout his tenure as Portugal coach. He's, I think it's no coincidence that he's, uh, of course, he's been there a long time, but he's given so many debuts to, I think it's 51 players he's given debuts to in his seven years. You know, it's quite a remarkable record. So he does like to look at his alternatives and he does tend to change his team up quite a lot, you know, when things don't go well and, you know, give bring players in who deserve to be given a chance. And also drop players who who aren't doing the job. So, so yeah, you know he's he's really got to do that now, hasn't he? He's got no choice after this performance. But yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not too worried that that won't happen. I think that will happen, and I think we'll see quite a different Portugal team for the France game. Anything in life, you can you can get all down and negative, and uh, you can have some optimism. And of course, this game against France is going to be extremely difficult. And uh, I guess one good thing for Portugal is that a draw should be enough to to get through if, if that is the, the final result. So maybe coming up against France after this performance against Germany is really going to shake things up, not only with Santos, but with the players, with their mentality. And yeah, you know, there's no reason to start hating on Santos now with with still a chance to get into the knockout rounds. Obviously, we'll, we'll talk again after the, the France game and, and we'll, we'll, we'll give our ideas about what happens then, but there's still no need to be completely hating on Santos, that's for sure. 
still one game to go. And of course, as I say, if something, if it does turn out that they don't make it, and um, then we can we'll, we'll revisit it again then. So let's talk about France, Tom. I guess we've we've really touched on this already, but let's give some uh, some thoughts about what sort of changes he's going to make. Let's start with fullbacks. Obviously, we've got Rafael Guerreiro. The only player that could replace him is going to be Nuno Mendes, who obviously is very young. Can you see that happening? Normally, I would have said in a in a heartbeat, yes, I think that would be a definite change. However, unfortunately, Nuno Mendes sat out the whole matchday squad yesterday because he picked up an injury, I think, uh, a muscle injury or muscle fatigue. So... We'll have to see how that goes. Hopefully, he's fit. Because if he is fit, yeah, I think he will come in. Because, you know, I think Guerreiro was, you know, was very poor this game. And Nuno Mendes has been very good for Portugal whenever he's played. And uh, he's also much more physical, of course, than Rafael Guerreiro. And against a very physical French team, you would have thought that that's, uh, you know, necessary. So, uh, yeah, I think it's all down to fitness, Matt. I think if he is fit, if Nuno Mendes is fit, that is definitely one change I would accept. I would expect. I agree. I think if he's if he's fully fit and ready to go, then you're not really going to lose anything there at the moment. And his his uh, youthfulness and his speed um, could be a benefit for Portugal. What about Nelson Semedo? Of, co- of course, he got ripped apart yesterday. But do we bring Diogo Dalot in? Who uh, he was okay for the under 21 side. Obviously, he's, he's done some good things at AC Milan. Would that be a change you could see happening? Not so sure about this one, you know. Like I say, I, uh, I've, I've got no particular affiliation to Nelson Semedo, but I think he's been a bit, he's been made a bit of a scapegoat. Uh, I was actually, I must say, I was quite impressed. The last, like you said, the only kind of time in this match where Portugal kind of did anything remotely praiseworthy was, I suppose, when they, you know, last 20 minutes or so. Of course, Germany were had taken their foot off the pedal by then, but. You know, fair play to Portugal. Their players did keep going, and I thought Nelson Semedo actually. He, you know, in those last 20 minutes, he he kept going. He could have just well, his confidence must have been just shot, but he, you know, he kept going and he tried to help Portugal. You know, pushed them a bit forward, and you know that was his best period of the match. Of course, that's obviously linked to the fact that Gosens was was taken off, but uh, and he he also has played well for Portugal in the past, Nelson Semedo. And another thing also we have to remember, Matt, if you take him out now, you know, after that, you know, what would that do to his confidence? You know, it's, it's one thing taking him out. And, for instance, if there was a Cancelo, well, you know, if Cancelo was there, he'd be first choice, wouldn't he? Or if there was a Ricardo Pereira. But taking him out for Dallo, which is, you know, no disrespect to Dallo. I think he's got a tremendous player, tremendous f- future. But, you know, he's never even played for Portugal. To cut a long story short, no, I, I'd be quite surprised if... Uh, if uh, Semedo doesn't start against France. We've already basically said that William will not be starting here, and obviously Renato Sanchez has to come into the starting lineup here, so that's pretty much a given, you would think. Yeah. I don't think he'll drop Danilo somehow. I don't see him starting Palinha somehow. I think he'd probably go to Ruben Neves before that. And, of course, starting uh, Ruben Neves and Moutinho would have some, some, some club... Yeah. Club connections, which, which could be important. And as I said before, the German game, that I'm assuming there'll be a similar tactic here against France where you're going to try and hit them on the counter-attack. And if you want long balls to release forwards, then there's not many better than Ruben Neves or João Moutinho at doing that. Certainly a million miles better than what we've seen from William. 
but yeah, he could go in so many different directions too. He's got a lot of lot of talent on the bench. And of course, up front, we haven't even seen Joel Felix. He also got a muscle injury, so they actually said the two players who weren't picked, the reason they weren't in the matchday squad was because they'd picked up injuries. So again, that's a, you know, I don't know if that will limit his chance. Obviously, that you know, if he's not, yeah. if he's not fit, that will be a, yeah, another option which which he can't have. Well, uh, he obviously is a very talented player, but I think you know, Diogo Jota showed enough yesterday to suggest that. Yeah. He doesn't really deserve to get dropped. And I think, you know, I, I really wouldn't be surprised if, if Santos is thinking about 2016 and looking at that, that that as a blueprint for success where you just have Jota and Ronaldo up front. And then, you know, as I said, you, you're going to bring in uh, Sanchez. You're going to keep probably Danilo. And then you need someone to kind of replace Adidian Silva, which is maybe your Ruben Neves or your Matinho type player. And then, of course, you'd probably stick with uh, Bernardo Silva and ask him not to go too high. So I really wouldn't be surprised if that's what Santosh is thinking about. He's, he's thinking about 2016. And I think it really is interesting to look at what he did there because that was a, a full campaign, you know, Portugal playing, what was it, six, seven games all the way to the final. And, and you really see what he did there. And of course it brought Portugal success. So I think it's quite interesting to look at exactly what he did there. With, with his changes and his, his tactics, which, which worked quite well. So really wouldn't be surprised if he, if he moves towards that. But time will tell. Uh, we will see. But yeah, apart from Sanchez being the obvious one to come in and William the obvious one to drop out, really he could go in, in a lot of different directions here. So let's see what happens, Tom. There's really no need to get too upset yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we need to stay positive. And, and give Santos that chance to turn things around and also the players. So going to be tough, but I think it's not such a bad thing taking on France. So let's stay positive. Yeah, yeah. If you know, like I said, have to stay positive. If Portugal do get through this, of course, they've got the advantage that they won't have to play these two teams until, you know, much later in the tournament. When a draw was made, you know, people really couldn't believe it, could they? You know, three teams of such quality in one group, it was always going to be really tough. It's going to be an exciting game. Hopefully we have something more positive uh, to talk about as far as the result after the France match. We hope you've enjoyed the Portugal podcast. Don't forget to check in with Portugal.net all throughout the tournament. I've been Matthew Marshall. Catch you next time.